our scripture from 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As I read through this book of Second Peter, I found that I could easily fall into the trap of thinking that the troubles and the misguided thinking of the people in the culture of our day are unique to us only in our day. That in days gone by, in those days that we call the good old days, that things and people were different then. Those days being a much simpler place and time and the people being kinder and gentler. And perhaps in some ways that may be true. Perhaps wickedness and suffering have become greater on the earth today than ever before. But then again, maybe not. Maybe not. But here as we begin to take our first steps into this book of Second Peter, we quickly find that many of the same troubles that we experience today, the sufferings and the wickedness, were also present 2,000 years ago. Just as they are today sufferings and troubles coming from influences outside of the church, coming inside, and then also troubles and suffering taking place right within the churches, brought on by other church members. And faith, or the lack of faith, seems ever and always at the center of it all, both in the problems and in the solutions. Faith, or the lack of faith. Now this letter by the Apostle Peter, as I said a moment ago, is the second letter that he wrote to this group of Jewish believers. Now they have been converted from Judaism to Christianity. And may I remind us that these folks were, again, a group of Israelites who several hundred years earlier had been exiled out of Israel over into Babylon and into other areas, and now they have been resettled in these lands that are modern-day Turkey. Peter's first letter to these folks seemed to have as its main concern that they be firmly established in their faith. I'd like for you to turn, if you would, to 1 Peter, just a couple of pages earlier in your Bible. And I'd like for us to look at some of those truths again for a moment. 1 Peter, and especially in chapter 1, verse 3. There he tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now here in these words, we're reminded that our faith and our eternal salvation is all of God's doing. All of God's doing and nothing of ourselves. And it's kept and it's guarded in heaven so that no one can take it from us. And it is by and through His great mercy and grace that we have been born again. And it was God Himself who actually caused our salvation to take place. Have you ever thought about that? 
that it is God Himself who caused our salvation to take place. He caused you and me to be born again. Let me read those words for you again. Verse 3, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And just a quick reminder about these precious words. Yes, you and I do definitely have a free will. And there's a lot of choices that you and I have to make. But these words are also undeniably true. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has caused me, has caused you, if you have salvation, if you've been born again, if you are a child of God right now, then He has caused you to be born again. Something that God Himself did caused you to turn your heart from self and all your selfish ways to Him. That can't be stated any more clearly in here. Listen again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now with that being said, we see that the first letter that God sent, it was primarily intended to firmly establish them in this newfound faith that they had. But know here also, in this second letter, that God is going back and doing the same thing. He is reconfirming their standing in Him, and He's reconfirming that faith is at the heart of all that He desires for His children. And here God reminds these folks that their saving faith was in every way the exact same kind of faith and of equal standing with all other believers even of equal standing with the apostles on faith. Now why would the apostle Peter be speaking of things like that? And it's because we in our churches want to believe that we're a little more righteous than the Baptist church or the Methodist church. And they there want to think that they are a little more righteous than we are. That their faith is different than ours. That went on in that day that the believers in Jerusalem might have been of a higher standing than those that were now living in Turkey. But not so. That's what God is reconfirming here. God reminds these folks that their saving faith was in every way the exact same kind of faith and of equal standing with all other believers. And listen, even of equal standing with the apostles' own faith, Listen to these words. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that salvation did come only through the righteousness of God, but they had it and it was of equal standing with anyone else's. Now I want to pause here for a moment and examine this thought where he says of equal standing with ours. Here the Apostle Peter, and by this time, by the way, he is no longer timid. He's no longer falling apart when the stress comes. He now is a giant of the faith. Here the Apostle Peter, he's a very, he has been the very best friend of the Lord Jesus. He walked with Jesus for three and a half years. 
He was part of the inner circle of the leadership of the twelve disciples. He was part of the three, he and James and John, who stood there on the mount and they saw the transfiguration of Christ and they heard the voice of God saying, This is my beloved Son. He got to witness all of that and he says to them these simple words. He says, You, you though you have never been heard of before, no one knows your name like they might know mine. But he's saying, your faith is of equal standing with mine. To use a today expression, we would probably have responded to him, oh, no way, Peter. No way is my faith equal to yours. But it was. It was and it is. Basic faith, real and true faith, the faith that brings each of us to salvation, really is the same for us all. And the Apostle Paul said it very simply in Acts 16. He said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe. Simple belief in the Lord Jesus that He is Savior and Lord and that we need Him to save our soul is all that we need. And then we're saved. That's what these Scriptures say. And not only are we saved, but we're on equal standing even with the Apostle Peter. Now let me give you an up-close example with you and your preacher. You might sit in the pews and you might think, well, gosh, the preacher has a greater faith than me, has a somewhat higher standing than me with God. That's why He gave us this word. He's saying, no, that's not so. You, your faith, if you have Christ as your Savior, if you truly have surrendered your heart to Christ, your faith is of equal standing with my own and with anyone else in this room that has Christ as their Savior. Now, yes, some people do get their own confusion going by defining belief and faith uh, in their own way, corrupting its meaning and power. And because of that, there are a lot of folks who profess faith and they really don't have the real faith that is spoken about here. But let me assure us again that these words about faith, simple faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are true. And you are saved if you have that faith. And it's the same faith that is of equal standing, not only with Apostle Peter, the very same faith that puts you on equal standing with Billy Graham. Can you imagine? Can you imagine saying, well, I'm on an equal standing. My faith is on the equal standing with Billy Graham. In humility, you shouldn't even be talking about it. No, but it is a fact. And that's what he's saying here. Don't put each other on a pedestal and especially don't lessen your standing with who he is. But now I want to pause and I want to ask you, I want to ask you personally, do you have this simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you personally have this simple faith? in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that He died for your sins and that in your believing in Him that you are saved? If you have that faith, if you have that faith personally, then you are saved. But let me warn you that if you don't, then you cannot let this moment go by. You cannot let this moment go by. In the words again of the Apostle Paul, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Just a moment of diversion. To us parents, 
you and your household. I have to confess that I don't really know what that means. But what I hope it means is that when my dear wife and I received Christ as our personal Savior, He made a promise not only to us that we are saved eternally, but He was making a promise that something would take place with my sons and my daughter. And so we parents hang on to that. Sometimes by our fingernails when times are going rough for our children. But this is true. He is saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Now, returning back to our Scriptures. So then, now that these dear folks have been established in their faith and they now have been reconfirmed in their faith, He's saying, I want you to know that you are saved. You're on equal standing. It's clear in this these next few verses that God is telling us why He had the Apostle Peter write this second letter. What He's saying in the words that will follow, and we'll study these next week, He's saying, you are now saved, yes, and your faith is on equal standing with my own. But that's only the beginning. When you receive Christ as your Savior, you only stepped in the doorway of God's kingdom. And so you're standing there at the doorway. Isn't it about time that you went ahead on in to God's kingdom? Isn't it about time that you moved on ahead? Now is the time. And He is strongly urging them to get up and get on with their Christianity. And that's what He's saying to you and me. It reminds me of the children of Israel. They had wandered in the desert for 40 years. And then suddenly one day, God said to Joshua, tell the people to get up. It's time to go on in. God is saying that to you and me in these words here, just as He said to them. Are you not tired of standing at the doorway of your salvation, never having taken further steps on in to the kingdom of God? He wants you to do that. You and I are His sons and daughters. And He's saying, come on into the house. Come on in. I want you to take part in what's going on in in the family. Now it's time to get up and move on ahead. Listen, to remain stagnant. If you don't move on ahead, your faith truly will, the strength of it will weaken and you'll falter. And the spiritual warfare that he talks about on in the upcoming chapters of this book, they'll begin to rage at you and you'll be falling flat on your face and you won't know why. It's because you did not get up and move on in into the, the caring confines of the kingdom of God. That good work that He began in us, both in the depth of it and in the defenses that He brings to us. And I want to say again, what He's saying here, He said to these folks, but He's saying it to you and me. In our present generation, we do have an awful lot of sin and wickedness. It does look to us like there's a lot more taking place, as I said at the beginning, than has ever taken place. You and I have to be prepared for it. And that's what he's talking about here, for us to get on up. And so verse 2, let me read that for you. That's where he tells us how it is to be built. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. God knows our hearts. He knows the hearts of men. And you knew that 
these dear people, though they were saved, they were still very unknowledgeable. And that's the key word here in this verse too. The knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. He knew that these dear people were unknowledgeable. They had not moved on ahead to learn of who He was as God. Very uncertain. And God in His loving generosity gave them the grace that they needed to move on in. Let me read that again. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. Too often, as I said at the beginning when I was reading these words to you earlier, too often preachers like me will read these beginning words of one of these Bible letters and we'll treat those words as simple platitudes, much like you would say and I would say in a letter, Dear brother, we hope you and your family are doing well. But that's not what God is doing here. I want to stress that. That's not what God is doing here. He never does that because He doesn't waste His words. These are instructions. These are instructions. And He wants us to move on into having a deeper knowledge of who He is. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I've said to you on other occasions that our English language is oftentimes really woefully inadequate to express the deeper meanings of some of the Greek and the Hebrew words that are given to us in the Bible. As you might know, the, primarily the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but the New Testament is written in Greek and Aramaic. And some of those words simply do not translate into English. English is not adequate to express what one of those Greek words might mean. And I'm going to talk about two of them right now that are going to be present in the next two or three verses. And in particular, it's this word, knowledge. Let me read that again for us in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. What does the word knowledge mean? It's a very special kind of knowledge. A very special kind like no other. Now we're going to study a lot more about it next week. But for today, this word that's translated here in verse 2 as knowledge comes to us from a Greek word. And let me spell it for you. It's epignosis. E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S. The G is silent. So the Greek word is epignosis. But if you read on down just two or three verses later here in 2 Peter 1, you see the same word knowledge again. Verses 5 and 6. The same word translated as knowledge. But there's a different Greek word behind it. That word is the simple word gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S. It's the same word, but it does not have the E-P-I as the prefix. But they are translated the same. And so some would say, well, gosh, that means the Bible is mistranslated. No, it's not. It's for the reason I just mentioned a moment ago. Those words simply do not have an English word that translates or transliterates out easily to tell us what it means. So it's not as if the Bible is mistranslated. What it takes is for you and me to spend more time in the Scriptures. If we will read these, the Holy Spirit who lives within these words will start to bring their meaning into our hearts. In verses 5 and 6, this word knowledge G-N-O-S-I-S. 
it has a simple meaning of learning, such as the kind that we might gain from study and training and science. But here in verse 2, the word knowledge, the epinosis, E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S, has a deeper meaning, not just learning about things. This epinosis has a deeper and fuller meaning of having discernment, having an experiential knowledge, the kind of knowledge that is most always gained in the context of personal relationships with people. In other words, you would not use this word epinosis. You would not hear a Greek-speaking person use this word epinosis if they were talking about learning how to work a math problem, the knowledge of how to work a math problem, or knowing how to speak a foreign language learning a foreign language, or learning some other academic kind of subject. Now this word epinosis should be used when speaking about knowing a person. And not knowing just about them, but knowing them intimately. As a wife and a husband would know each other, or a good friend would know their good friend. They have this kind of caring relationship knowledge about them. And so they know this person. They know how they think, how they feel about matters. And that same kind of knowledge would also be able to be said about these Scriptures, that these Scriptures reveal God. They reveal His person. They reveal His personality. They reveal His nature, His character, His plans. And these words also have the very presence of the Holy Spirit living within them. So then, it's proper to say that through our knowledge the epinosis of these Scriptures, which you would gain by studying them and asking the Lord to, tell me what you mean, Lord. Tell me what you mean when I'm reading these. So, if you're studying, if you have a knowledge of these Scriptures, the epinosis, then God's Spirit will give us a revealed knowledge of Him. And we'll have what's called the epinosis. We'll not just know about Him. And why is that important? It's because a lot of people know a lot about God. Here in the South, we're in the Bible Belt. And everybody knows about God. You can ask anybody about Jesus and pretty much everyone would be able to tell you who He is. But they don't know God. They don't know Jesus. They have this G-N-O-S-I-S. They have this gnosis about Him. They've learned about Him. But they don't know Him. They don't really know Him. Great academic minds. They write papers. You can watch programs on PBS about the Bible. And most of those people, or right now, Morgan Freeman has this program on about God. Let me assure you that by by the evidence of everything he says, he only has a G-N-O-S-I-S knowledge, a Gnosis knowledge of God. Only this learned thing that somebody told him. He doesn't know the real God. Now, it might sound like I'm being critical of him. No, I'm simply saying the evidence of what he says says he's a great mind. He is a great mind, brilliant man. But he does not know God in the sense that this word that we're reading here, knowledge of God, epinosis. And that's the difference. And that's why you and I need to spend time in these Scriptures and to really get to know the heart of God, to really get to know His mind, who He is, what His desires are for you and me. Else, you know what's going to take place? Someday, you'll stand before God. 
There's a scripture verse, special scripture verse that says that some people will stand before God in judgment and they'll say, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? A lot of people go around saying, oh, have a blessed day. How many times do you hear that? Or God bless you. You know what Jesus will say? He said here in the Scriptures, He'll say, Depart from Me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Never knew you. Notice that word? I never knew you. We didn't have this knowledge, this epinosis that you're supposed to have with Me. We don't know each other. Depart from Me, you worker of iniquity. So i got to ask you, as we close, what kind of knowledge do you have of God? Ask yourself personally because you're what counts. You're going to stand there before God all by yourself. When it comes to judgment, you don't get to bring anybody with you. You're going to stand there. What kind of knowledge do you have of God? Is your knowledge of the deep and intimate kind, that loving kind of knowledge? Or is your knowledge only that general information the gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, something you learned along the way, something you heard somebody say, maybe lots of times, but you still didn't ever really get to know God. I plead with you. I plead with you. Do not let this day go by. Get to really know God intimately and personally. I'll close with His words in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray.